0: Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So, enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. Um, uh, Another little piece of announcement here for us, just to give you an update. Uh, we got our permits for the Compassion House. Yeah. So, um, oh shoot, what is the date for that? Is Dan Reist here? Hold on. Give me one second. Framing will happen. First and second. The third's a Sunday, so probably not. Yeah. Um, yeah, the first and second of March. And so uh, if... There's a sign up in the weekly email for that, if you want to help with that. All right. Um, I am. There, there is potential, like, I choke my way through this because I've been, as you might be able to tell, I've been sick a little bit this week. So if I'm gasping for air up here, that's just the way it is for the day. Uh, so if you have pens, get those out. Uh, we're going to just do a, a bit of response this morning as we begin with the passage that we have. Um, we, we are liturgy light around here, and um, if we were liturgy proper today would be Transfiguration Sunday, but I seem to have missed that memo. So for us, it's the sixth Sunday of Epiphany. Not that that matters maybe to anybody, but I'm just announcing my foible there for a minute. Uh, When we get together in interpretive communities every week, we begin with this question, and this is the question that I want to give you 30 seconds to reflect on or so. And the question is this, what initially sticks out to you about this passage that I'm about to read? So what initially sticks out to you, or what questions might you have as a result of it? Now again you can draw you can draw an emoji you can draw words you can word map it out whatever you'd like to do but just respond to that question what initially sticks out to you about this passage or what questions does it raise Here's the scripture for today from 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 24 through 27 Do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one gets the prize Run in such a way as to get the prize Take 30 seconds, write down just your initial responses, what sticks out to you, what questions do you have. Oh, I was like, where'd that come from? Trying this, Ben? I could just listen to this whole song. Okay, we'll move on now. (laughs) All right. Uh, Leah, here's the emoji I came up with for myself. Yeah. Uh, And here's why I came up with this kind of emoji. It's because when I hear these verses, when I read these verses, on one hand, I feel really motivated. Really, really motivated um, to put a lot of effort into my self-control, and then I. I uh, so, one, it, it's kind of effort leaning, but then I also wondered how I would go about such a thing without it becoming a means of control. Does that make sense? So, I really want to. I want to do the work of self-control. But then there's also this paradox and this tension where sometimes self-control becomes a means of control. The end. Thank you for coming today. (laughs) Uh, As an interpretive community, uh, this last week we wondered how we could hear such a passage and it not be uh, something that would just uh, direct us into legalism, which is simply legalism is a form of control. Uh, And I think it's one of these things that it's important not to dismiss the work of faith or obedience or something that is good because of how something has been used legalistically. It's not just those people who are legalistic. I remember sitting down with somebody one time and them really struggling with the church they were coming from. And so they're really legalistic about this. (laughs) And then I asked them, do you realize you're also being legalistic about what you believe So legalism is not something that's just out there. It's something that creeps into each one of us. And so we can't get rid of something good, something like faithfulness or obedience, because of how someone might have misused it at some point in time, or how we might misunderstand it or misapply it. Legalism focuses on the what, what is done, rather than the why, or as Paul will say in this passage, the, the prize, why we do what we do and how we do what we do. Legalism tends to be short-sighted, very focused on, on, on the what we're doing, losing sight of the, of the end, and making actually the end part of the means. Obedience at its best, I think, is, is worship and a, an expression of love and faithfulness to God. And so this is a tension that we want to sort out, why uh, we do what we do, the motivations of why we do what we do. And a lot of this has to do with how we think about the prize in this passage. So Paul says, run in such a way as to get the prize. What is this prize that Paul is, is talking about? The prize is really important. Because the prize is why you keep putting in the effort in the first place. If it's a good payoff at the end, if the vision of the end is good enough, then you're going to put in the work in order to get to that end. We can think of it very tangibly in terms of goals that we might set for ourselves or those kinds of things. But we also think about this in the life of faith. As as we envision the end is the end and the vision of the end compelling enough to drive us to live in such a faithful and obedient way. So, what is the prize? What is the prize that Paul is talking about? And is it compelling enough? Now, our first thought um, is probably heaven. Right? The prize is heaven. And that's not necessarily wrong. If you have a robust view of heaven. However, Leah, let us imagine together how we typically think of heaven, in the Led Zeppelin sort of fashion, right? (laughs) Often our heaven talk is very, very disconnected from life. It's the place where God is, where we go when we die. It's It's a realm, it's a dimension that's far, far away. We may or may not be floating around on clouds all the time. We may or may not be singing all the time, which for some would be hell if we had to sing for our whole existence from here until whenever. For modern people, heaven isn't a motivation to run the race because it is so disconnected from everyday life. Heaven is so disconnected, it is not something that motivates us. I would say probably it's something that we say because we know we should, but we're not really convinced of it, right? Why do I run this way? What's, what's awaiting me? Well, heaven's awaiting me when I die, because if you say anything different, well, then that kind of throws the whole thing into a, a, a tailspin. But the kind of view of heaven that we have is, is, is kind of not having anything to do with the reality that we live now. And so why do all this work that Paul talks about, why do all this self-control kinds of work to run this race when we get to something so impractical? But what if we had a more robust view and vision of heaven? What if heaven wasn't disconnected from earth, but the vision that we're looking forward to and to which all things are going, is heaven and earth being reunited once again. And this is what the Bible talks about. The dichotomy in the Bible is not heaven and hell. That's what we've conjured up. What the Bible talks about is heaven and earth. Those two things come together and are alongside each other. In fact, in the Bible, heaven and hell are never alongside one another. Heaven and earth are alongside of one another multiple times because the vision... To which everything is moving is a renewed, restored heaven and earth. So creation is renewed. And so what we see in the beginning chapters of Genesis 1 and 2 is what will be. This is the recreation is where we're moving towards. And we get tastes of that now. We get tastes of when heaven and earth meet. And this this happens throughout the Bible, those theophanies, when heaven and earth meet. This is the ministry of Jesus, the kingdom of God, now having come on earth as it is in heaven. Someone once asked me how to respond to her young son who had asked her uh, what heaven was like. And I said, "Ask ask your son what the most beautiful thing in creation he has ever seen is. I said, start there. Because creation gives us a sense of what will be because creation is going to be renewed. Can you imagine a renewed creation in all its beauty minus everything that we've done to destroy it? So it's like the most beautiful thing you can imagine multiplied by an unimaginable number, right? We, we saw this even in COVID in a very practical sense, right? The whole world shut down for a short period of time. And uh, all the industry and the industrial shut down. And what could you do? You could see for miles and miles and miles. Views of mountaintops that were obscured by smog for years and years. Suddenly people in, in different countries could see. Because creation had a chance to take a breath. Creation's beautiful, and this is why Paul talks about in Romans 8 that the creation is groaning and waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. Creation is groaning and waiting for that time when it itself is renewed, when the heavens and the earth come together once again. And so the beginning uh, chapters of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2 give us a sense of what we're heading towards So we don't have to say, I'm not quite sure what heaven's going to be like. Actually, at least I I feel like I I don't know, but I kind of know. Like I can get a vision about what it's going to look like. Because there's some beautiful things around me, this creation that God's given to us. He's not going to give up on. He's not going to destroy the nature of it. The, the sinfulness and the evil that plagues it, those things will be destroyed, but creation itself, of which you and I are part, is going to be renewed. That's the end towards which we're moving, where all things are being made new again. Like, if that's heaven, I'm, I'm on board. Like, I... I, I That's a vision that I can align my life to. If it's some place that's disconnected, where I'm going to meet St. Peter in the sky, and these pearly gates are going to come open, and I'm going to get me a, a white robe and float around with my little ukulele, you know, it's not compelling. And I don't think it's just not compelling for me. It's not compelling. But if this place is going to be renewed... And if we participate and are receptors of that renewal, sign me up, man. That's something worth spending my life on. Maybe you too. So I think that's part of what Paul talks about and gives me a wonderful vision of why I should be running in this kind of way. But there's another aspect to the creation narrative that I want to pay attention to that gives us a vision for how things will be. And it's this little word called Sabbath. Sabbath. Now, most of us, when we hear the word Sabbath, we think of Sunday. We think of the seventh day of the week. We think of everything that we shouldn't do. I won't brutalize your ears with my grandmother's song about Sabbath again, because I've done it two or three times, and it's really fun to do. Should I do it? Okay. Grandma, love you. You should not work on Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. You should not work on Sunday because it is a sin. (laughs) This is viewing Sabbath as a day. This is not how the Bible talks about Sabbath. Sabbath isn't the creation story is not a Monday. God is not coming up with the calendar. This is Monday through Friday, or Monday through Sunday. Monday through Sunday, yes. It's not days in the week. It's not a calendar year, right? When you get to the end of creation, day one, two, three, four, five, six, and you hit seven, it's the way you read it is not linear, folks. That's <laughs> that's a Western way of reading the creation story. It's not a linear way of reading. When you get to day seven, day seven is supposed to be the state. ...in which everything continues its existence. It's not like it starts over at day one again. You don't get the Sabbath on Sunday, or Saturday if you're Jewish, or Seventh Day of Venice. And then then you hit Monday again, and it just starts all over. That's not the intention of the writer at all. Sabbath is to be an existence, a way of being in the world... A way that is at rest in God, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning. The way of shalom when everything is complete in God. When God rests, it's not because God's beat from creating and doing all the work that he has done over that time. God rests because, not because he was tired, but everything was complete and it was good. I love what the Bema podcast says, God knew when to stop. We don't know when to stop. We keep going and going and going and going. That's why we need Sabbath. It's because we need to know when to stop and to rest. So we're created, friends, get this. We're created in the creation story. We're created on day six. And our existence is to live into day seven. Our existence is is meant to live into a Sabbath way of being and a Sabbath way of life. And what I've mentioned before a few times is this if you read it that way, what then is the day that we rebel against? It's a Sabbath. It's that Sabbath way of being that you and I rebel against. It's a rebellion in its essence against trusting, trusting in. The goodness of God. And so we find ourselves, as John Steinbeck wrote, East of Eden, wonderful book by the way, exiled from an existence of trust and rest. But also, so we're exiled from that place, but we're also on our way to that place again. Because the idea of Sabbath doesn't just stay in the creation narrative, it's a vision for what is to come. This is why throughout the Old Testament, there is the Sabbath that is the part of, of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And interestingly enough, the Sabbath, the first three have to do with God. The last remaining uh, five, five, six have to do with humanity. But what hinges is the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Notice it's not a do not, Right? Do not have other gods before me. Do not uh, use the Lord your God's name in vain. Do not murder. All the do-nots remember. Remember the Sabbath day. And so we see in the Sabbath day that God provides bread and God provides manna. We see that there's supposed to be a rest on the sevens for the land. Every 49 years there's supposed to be a declaration of jubilee where everybody's debts are forgiven. This idea of Sabbath runs throughout the scriptures. We run into it in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Paradoxical kind of phrase there. Make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So heaven and earth, the renewal of all things, is the prize, but Sabbath is a way that we understand the kind of life and kind of existence that we will have. One that is at rest, one that lives in trust and at peace and shalom. A Sabbath way of being isn't just for the future. It's not just for what we're moving towards, but it can be and it's meant to be experienced and tasted in the here and the now too. This is why it's all throughout the Old Testament. So it's fine to say that heaven is the prize, but only if we have a robust view of what heaven is, a robust vision uh, uh, of what heaven is. It's fine to say that heaven's the prize, but not the stairway to heaven, so to speak, which is disconnected from the reality of the earth. Hebrews says, make every effort to enter that rest. Paul's tone is similar. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone uh, who competes in the game goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I don't run like someone who's running aimlessly. I don't fight like a boxer beating at the air. (laughs) Severe language. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. Let's push pause on Paul for a minute, and let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1-14, through 14, which is the Old Testament reading for the day. One of the things I love to do when reading the Bible is have the Bible talk to itself. And so um, if, if you haven't um, done lectionary readings before, there's Old Testament, Psalm, um, Gospel, and New Testament reading, and oftentimes these things talk to one another. Uh, And so one of the things that we do in interpretive communities is is not just read the text that we're focusing on, but we read all of them to see what perspectives they can give to us around the passage that we're looking at. I'm not going to read the whole story. I'm going to summarize it for you. It's a story of a guy named Naaman. Uh, Some of you might know this story, but Naaman was the commander of an army uh, called Aram. He was really, really good at what he did. He was the kind of commander that you would want to have in charge of your armies. And he accomplished significant things for his king. But there was an issue with Naaman, namely that he had leprosy. Now, during one of Naaman's raids in Israel, uh, he captured a young girl who became his wife's slave. Out of loyalty to his wife um, and to his mistress, his wife... Um, she encouraged Naaman, so the slave girl who has been captured by Naaman encouraged Naaman to go to Samaria, to see the prophet who was Elisha at the time, because she believed that Elisha could heal him. And so he set off, and uh, set off for Syria where, or Samaria where he was, and um, in in search of meeting him. Naaman shows up at Elisha's house, sends some messengers in, and Elisha rather than coming out and and honoring the presence of Naaman just sends his messengers back out with instructions. Just go bathe in the Jordan. If you go bathe in the, in the Jordan River, you'll, you'll be healed. Everything will be fine. And Naaman was ticked. He was angry. He was asked to bathe himself in a cruddy river. And so if you read down through, there's some things that didn't happen that he would have rather happened. Uh, the powerful prophet Elijah or Elisha didn't come out. And honor him, like do the, in the name of the Lord. Right? He didn't honor him in that way. He didn't even talk to him. He just sent a messenger out. He wasn't told to go to a special body of water. There were some other rivers that were named there by Naaman he would have rather gone to. You can maybe think of it as maybe waters in Fiji compared to the Susquehanna. You don't necessarily want to swim in the Susquehanna. So uh, he was asked to bathe in the Susquehanna, essentially. And then, so he's, he's mad, and his servant says, Look, why are you so angry? If he would have asked something difficult for you to do, in other words, if you would have had to prove yourself and prove yourself worthy, you would have done it. Just go wash in the Jordan and be cleansed. And so, after all this, he does, and he's healed. So let's hold these two stories These two texts beside one another, the story of Naaman and Paul, and allow them to speak to one another. For Naaman, do the simple thing. There's something for you to do, Naaman, but it's not as glamorous or as complicated as you want to make it. For Paul, go after the prize, go into strict training, make your body a slave but maybe it's not as glorious or as complicated as you want to make it. When it comes to how we think of God or religion, or what religion tells us God asks of us, it's usually more than less. The layers continue to compound on themselves. It's not very simple. We We don't usually think, oh, God's not really asking that much from you. We're more Naaman-esque, right? We want to to prove ourselves or we want to do something that gives glory to ourselves while honoring God at the same time. It's usually not simple. Self-control, what Paul's talking about here in this passage, is what Dallas Willard calls a discipline of abstinence. It's not more, it's less. Do you know how much effort it takes sometimes to not do something? Imagine this for the Corinthians who live in this place of excess like Corinth and the effort it takes not to participate in that culture. And for us, maybe the effort it takes to not respond quickly To not say the first thing that comes to your mind. To not live in fear. To trust and not try to earn God's love. To not read between the lines of what your loved one is saying. To not talk badly about people who think you think are idiots. To not think of people as idiots. You get my drift? Like, it's hard not, it takes discipline, self-control not to, let alone to, to do all the things that we want to do to prove ourselves. It takes a lot not to. So Paul says, run in a way as so to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the game goes into strict training. We're thinking of all the things that we've got to add to ourselves in order to do what we think God wants us to do. It ends with that, no, I stroke a, a, a strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave. I picked that emoji in the beginning because I find these verses both instructive and frustrating to me. Being the kind of person that I am, I want to go home after reading this verse and make, or these verses and make a list of things that I need to do to work on in order to be faithful to God. Anybody with me? You, some of you already have used your note section to do that. And inevitably, that list is incredibly short-lived for me. I start for maybe an hour or a day with incredible consistency, and it takes very little time to face my inconsistency. Here's something, if, you, if you've been zoning out, zone in for just a minute. I'm always, always cautious when I think I have to do something for God. Because the have to is usually my inner Naaman wanting to prove that I'm pretty great and worthy. I'm usually cautious when I feel like I have to do something. How I have come to know God is God is invitational. God is invitational. We have opportunities to participate in. He's not cracking the whip behind you. It's not a list of have-tos. That's usually my self-imposed, I have to. What I think Paul's getting at here in his active kind of language is something like Jesus' language in John 15 when he talks about remaining in, in Christ. If we remain in him, then we'll bear much fruit. I think that's Sabbath kind of language. Sabbath kind of language says, I can because God. I can because God. I think part of being a person of faith is learning that the story doesn't revolve around you. Being a person of faith is living in such a way that God's holding the story. That God is carrying the story. And so it's so much more about God than it is us. But like Naaman, we're pretty prone to want to make it about us. Sabbath language is I can because God, dot, dot, dot. I can respond because with God I can respond in love. I can be silent because I'm trusting God. I can be silent. I don't have to defend. I don't have to prove. God doesn't need me to defend God. It's kind of a laughable idea in the first place. I can be at peace and not live in fear because God is God. I can trust God's love for me because Jesus says so. I can hope because I'm trusting God. I'm not trusting the way that things look. I can love the idiots because God loves the idiots. And I'm an idiot. But it's a life that is at rest in God. There's a lot of active language in Paul's passage here. There's a lot of active language. But remaining is active, trusting is active, surrendering is active. What I think Paul is getting at here, and he probably doesn't have this kind of language in mind, but what I think he's getting at is participating in the life of Christ in the here and the now, participating in a Sabbath way of being here and now, where our activity in life, whatever actively we do, comes from a soul that is at rest in God. So we are actively engaging the world, not from a place of anxiety and fear, but a place of rest and a place of confidence. Not in ourselves, but in God. And yes, it takes effort to remain there. Maybe even more effort to remain than to do something else. Because remaining with God is effort in and of itself. Amen. I want to just give us a, a minute. If you want to close your eyes, you may do that. But I just want to invite you, um, trusting that the Spirit speaks to us. If there's a word, a phrase, or an image that comes to mind... Just allow that to surface for you into your heart and receive that from God.